It's amazing to me to think that spacecraft have actually gone to the surface of Venus and taken pictures. And the environment there is horrible. We always talk about how it's hot enough to melt lead, that the pressures are the equivalent of being under the ocean at a kilometer, and there's sulfuric acid that's trying to eat in. And it's sort of surprising that landers have survived at all, but the Soviets pulled it off. But they didn't last long, just a few minutes. So what would it take to send some kind of lander to the surface of Venus that could survive for not minutes, but maybe days, months, maybe even indefinitely. So my guest today is Dr. Tibor Kremick, who works at NASA Glenn Research Center, and he and his team are working on electronics, batteries, other components of a spacecraft that are designed not only to survive at high temperature, but to really function, to thrive in temperatures that are that hot and under those kinds of pressure and corrosive chemical conditions as well. So we talk about the different kinds of electronics, battery systems, and other ideas to have a much longer exploration from the surface of Venus. All right, here's the interview. Does our imagination let us properly appreciate just how awful it is down at the surface of Venus? Um, well, some people that with really exciting imaginations probably can. <laughs> right. I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard to appreciate how, how challenging it is. Yeah, like when you look really at Venus, like when you look at pictures of the surface of Venus, even the ones taken by the Venera spacecraft, it looks like you're, I don't know, like near a volcano. The sky is sort of uh, orangey yellow and cloudy and the rocks look like they're covered in sulfur, but... It's far worse than that, right? Um, well, that's a great description. I mean, it's it's kind of eerie, like you're like you're in an oven where everything's around you is just hot. I mean, it gives you that that sense. Uh, it is worse than that, um, in terms of you know the, the pressure part. So that 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 scene doesn't really reflect the the intense pressure that one sees. Also, there's um, I, I think some challenges that people don't appreciate as you get to the surface itself, coming from space, very cold. You're going uh, very quickly through, uh, well, not so quickly, through a sulfuric acid bath, if you will, through right. the clouds. And then it just gets hot and really dense and high pressure. And uh, then you described it well on the surface. It's like a orange mist, kind of very thick. You don't really see very well. You can't like pinpoint where the sun would be. It's all very diffuse. So just kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a fuzzy red glow, orange glow and it's hot. Right, yeah. And I mean, I love this story. When you think about, say, the, the Soviets attempting to land on Venus with their Venera program, it was all about, like, each probe, they made a little tougher and then learned where it failed, and then until finally mm -hmm. they were able to reach the ground. But they, they had no idea what environment they were going into. They just knew that they hadn't built their last spacecraft tough enough until they finally did. Yes. yes. Um, so then... Yeah, yeah. You know, and yet with the Venera program, we only got less than an hour of observations from the surface of Venus. So what will it take to be able to have something last on the surface of Venus for a longer period of time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so, like you said, uh, there have been many, many attempts, right, to, to, to put down very large, sophisticated, heavy platforms on the surface of Venus and, you know, 
minutes, right? Uh, and you know that that it lasts, right? All that investment, all that energy, all that uh, money just only lasts for a few minutes. Wonderful science, still wonderful to take some of those measurements. A lot can be done, but that's not that's not what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to do instead of trying to control this really nasty environment around us, and really doing that without a way to 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 harness power or energy out of the system. What we're trying to do is make ourselves and design it so that we're happy living in that nasty, nasty environment. That's really our approach. So we're putting away the large, the big, the heavy, and trying to control our thermal environment. Rather, we're going from the other direction. We're leveraging investments and years and years of work that we've done in high temperature electronics, sensors, and to build a system that will be happy in that nasty environment. And that's our approach. And if you can do that with the appropriate power system, that's how you can um, attain weeks and months of, of life on the surface of Venus. So then break that down for me. Like if you're looking at it from the conditions of Venus, where would a traditional spacecraft fail? And what are the pieces that you then have to re-engineer? Yeah, so the, the Achilles heel of spacecraft of Venus is, is primarily the temperature. So, and uh, the temperature, um, so we, we can make vessels that keep out the pressure and many of our, our systems that we take there aren't really susceptible to pressure, but they are susceptible to temperature. So what happens is that, um, and, and it's primarily the electronics, right? So we send this vessel down, um, the way the Soviets have done it is they had this uh, giant pressure vessel and they had phase change material. So that would keep the temperature at a, at a max for, you know, like you said, minutes, right? Until it soaks in all that heat and eventually that phase change material expires, if you will. All the energy it can absorb is gone. And then the temperature inside starts to rise. And then when it hits the limitations of the electronics, that's when things stop operating and, and that's when the life ends. So, so that's really what, what kills spacecraft it's the temperature uh, of the and the, and the um, capability of the electronics to sustain and operate in those conditions. Right, your sol your solder is melting. Your batteries are frying. Every part of the spacecraft electronics is designed to work at you know room temperature ish on Earth. Not that. Right. Yeah. That's correct. That's exactly right. And even some of that what we call high temperature on Earth are nowhere near the four hundred and sixty degrees that Venus is at. So high temperature electronics, you might say 200 degrees C or something like that. We're at 460 on the surface of Venus. So quite a bit of a gap there between what we can do with traditional terrestrial electronics and what has to work on Venus. Right. Okay. So then explain then the, I guess, the process. What are the technologies that can swap out some of the more vulnerable parts into something that can handle that high temperature environment? Yeah, so the, the key that um, that we're leveraging is, like I said, decades of investment in silicon carbide-based electronics. So it's not silicon, it's a wider band gap. So the energy levels to move things around in the electronics are higher. And that allows us to, um, and, and that technique and you know, deliberately designing for robust systems. So looking very carefully at um, how um, systems fail at those temperatures over time, right? And then adjusting the, the, the fabrication of the internal designs of the ICs and so forth, using these materials that are specialized and can endure not only the temperatures, but also some of the chemical things. So one of the things we haven't talked about is the chemistry at the surface is also not very friendly. So it's reactive. And so as you, uh, when it doesn't matter if you're gonna be there for a few minutes, 
But as you're talking about weeks and months, you have to be compatible with that reactive chemistry. And so those are all the pieces that we're, we're working on. So, but, but primarily it's leveraging the silicon carbide based electronics that have the ability to operate. And we've demonstrated operation of those types of electronics for thousands of hours at 500 wow. or more degrees C. So, so you can take a, a silicon carbide microchip and run it in 500 Celsius for long periods of time with no detrimental effects. That's correct. Right, right. That's exactly correct. Now, now, one thing I would point out is that the, the sophistication and level of these electronics are not what we're accustomed to in our terrestrial electronics. So, um, you know, it won't have the power of our smartphones, for example. It's simpler electronics. Think, think back in some of the early space missions. That's the fidelity. That's the, the capabilities that these types of electronics can handle today. But, of course, we've invested effort and we're continuing to invest effort to make those become uh, smaller, make them be able to do more processing, more complex, and allow us to eventually get to that level of sophistication. But that'll be a little bit farther down the road. Right. Our first so you, generation won't be at that power level. Right. So you can't go to Intel and request a silicon carbide <laughs> version of the i7. No. <laughs> right, right. No, no, no. I mean, you can go there, but you're not going to get anywhere. You don't get that. anywhere. You know, they don't have a chip fab set up for that. So then, like... Give me an idea. You say like the sophistication of these early spacecraft. So essentially you are creating your own chips with Absolutely. the materials that you have available, but with this other kind of, of, of chemistry. So what is it about silicon carbide that provides that temperature protection? It's, it's the wide band gap. It's the energy levels and then the materials that are in there that allow, allow it to operate at those higher temperatures. And, and, or how, ceramic like, kind of, yeah, go ahead. And, and like, theoretically, let's say you could convince Intel to go and redesign their chip fabs. Would you be able to see performance out of silicon carbide that would match existing silicon chips? Or is there some kind of like fundamental uh, lack of performance just coming from that, that material? Well, there's a fundamental difference. So um, I, I'm not probably the best one to predict how closely one can, um, get to, but there are physics, there are physics driven uh, things. The, the, the transport of electrons and so forth are, are different. The architecture, so, so an IC chip can be developed using different types of uh, electronic transistors, different types of transistors and components that can create that. So um, most of our electronics right now are based on the uh, field effect transistors, so JFETs, is basically the, the the architecture, the transistor architecture that we're using. So those have certain features that are different from bipolar junction transistors, for example, and so on. So, so, um, so there's it's a, it's a it's a deeper kind of question than you know what the IC itself can do. Um, it's really the nature of the the pieces that you make that up with, and each of those have features. So some of them, uh, for example, because of the electronics, the the JFET architecture we're using that has a certain power consumption characteristics and it also has uh, limitations on how quickly one can switch from one state to another and so as we look to increase our for example communication frequencies we're going to have to move away from the jfit architecture and into something else to allow us to get those higher rates of, of transmission and and switching between these devices so so those are examples um, where i'm trying to convey that um you know so there's there it's a whole it's a whole um, how do i want to say this 
uh, th- there's a whole series of things that have to kind of grow mm-hmm. and mature together to be able to reach that level of sophistication. Right. I mean, and some I'm, of those are different techniques, different devices, and then they all uh, protrude. But there's going to be fundamental differences just by the nature of the of the materials that we use. I mean, I'm sure as you look at the capabilities of an existing spacecraft, say you take the DART mission or something that else that you've worked on, and you look at all of the off-the-shelf components that you're just relying on, on the communication systems, on the on the bus, on the memory architecture, all of that kind of stuff, you can't take any of that for granted anymore. You've got to go and re-architect each one of those pieces using this essentially entirely new ecosystem and you don't have you can't get a giant intel chip fab working on your behalf so you're having to replace this functionality so you lose performance but i'm guessing what you gain is that it even functions which is correct absolutely which is That's a benefit. exactly right right and, it, and, and you, you've said it very well it goes across the whole system so electronics is only one piece of it right but there's the power system there's a the communication system all those are have to like you said they have to work all of that together and increase the capabilities of all of those to have the system work because it's like a chain, right? One piece doesn't work. You don't have a power source. Nothing's going to happen. You don't have a communication system. You don't get any data back. You don't have electronics. You can't do any processing or take measurements. If you don't have the sensors, you can't get the data off the surface. So all those pieces, like you say, have to work kind of together and they all have different challenges. So that's really the fun part about this. And this is why, you know, I I love what I do (laughs) Yeah, yeah. because we're tackling all of this stuff and it's really exciting. Right. And I I can just imagine, as you say, you know, you, you look at all of these pieces and then you go, yeah, but what if it was on Venus? And you'd be like, oh, right. The antenna would melt. Oh, right. The, you know, the, the solder would, would melt as well. So, so let's talk about, you know, we've talked about like the, the chip side and it sounds to me like, seeing this run in an oven for months on end and still computing happily has got to make you feel confident that 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 piece of the puzzle is now moved into the engineering realm and needs solutions let's talk about batteries because this is sort of what put you onto my radar in the first place Mm -hmm. you're working on a battery that can theoretically work in a high temperature environment that's correct that's correct so um, basically what we're doing here is we're leveraging investments uh, made by others in government and industry. Um, they're called thermal batteries. So these are batteries that um, are designed to sit uh, very comfortably for years and years and years, keep their charge. They're totally inactive, totally dormant. And uh, terrestrially, what has to happen is that they have to be raised to a high temperature. And that's typically done by uh, firing a pyro that's inside the battery itself so that it can uh, soften up and get the electrochemistry can start to function. Right. So so on Venus, we've got the, 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 the opportunity, if you will, to just harness the heat locally. We don't have to fire anything, right. but just let it get hot as it descends. You know, the spacecraft is descending into the environment um, and through the atmosphere. And as it gets close to the surface, if it gets hot enough, then this the, then the electrolytes in there will will, will melt basically, and it'll start acting as a battery. It'll start generating power. Wow. So that's really what's happening here is we're taking a, a, an Earth application and flip, flipping it over on its head, not not putting it into an environment that the battery itself is happy, but we, we have to um, modify the, 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 the chemistry in the internals because typically the applications here are very high powers for very short time periods. On Venus, we want to do just the opposite. We want to have long periods of operation and just minimize the amount of energy that we're taking out at a beach time. So there's work to, to work on. Uh, there was work to develop re- 
redevelop the chemistry, if you will, but still keep the feature of it being totally um, resilient, like a brick, if you will, as it comes in, as it goes, but then it will just turn on and, and operate for a long period of time on Venus. So that, that was the approach we took, and that's kind of where uh, it's looking at it's going to happen. And, and what are the, like, give us a sense of, like, the kind of chemistry or materials that are involved and how they're different from, I guess, like a traditional battery, like a lithium battery or zinc. Um, so, so I'm not, a, I'm not a electrochemist. Right, right, right. Uh, so but some of those are, broad are, are, I won't be able to get too much <laughs> details, but um, yeah, they're, um, yeah, so they're lithium iron sulfite um, elements as well as other things. I'd have to point out, I'd have to go talk to somebody. To get okay, the, okay. The but, but the point off, is, is that you've got head, a but... mix of chemicals that, that it, Correct. it batteries at 450 Celsius on the surface of of venus that's correct yeah. as it gets warmer you know we're we're up above well above 300 degrees celsius that that there, there's a solid electrolyte at lower temperatures that melts at those temperatures and then it allows for the the currents to flow in the chemistries between the cathode anode and, and function of this electrode and we have multiple cells that are put together to give us the right voltage that our system needs to run those electronics because they'll also have different power needs than normal electronics. You know, uh, a couple small five volt thing won't, won't work for us right now. So, so all that again works as a system together. But we 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 design that battery for the voltage that it has to produce, the um, the pressures that it has to take, mm -hmm. and also the chemistry that it has to to live in. Um, again, we're we're always mindful that we're in a reactive chemistry, so um, we have to um, pick. So copper and things like that we typically use on spacecraft um, are not going to work on Venus. And so you would, I mean, I don't even know how you would describe it, but you would charge it up here on Earth almost by, I don't know, putting in the right metals or maybe heating them up and then charging exactly. it up. And yep. then you would let it solidify and then send it to Venus. And then as it melted, it would it would have that power differential between the cathode and the anode, and it would be able to actually start functioning as a battery. Do you have a sense of, of how long the battery would last? Yes. So that's really, so um, that's really what we've been working on is to, to make sure that the battery itself doesn't um, erode its own energy because of the things that are going inside the battery. So self-discharging, we minimize the self-discharge. After that, it's really a function of what, the, at how, how we're drawing energy out of it. So it, so we'll have a certain amount of watt hours, certain amount of energy that's in that battery. Over time, that's going to slowly deplete because there is some self-discharging. But, but if that's low enough, then it's really a function of how we choose to take the energy out of it. And that's another feature of what we're trying to do is that we, we are not, um, we're, we're focusing the type of, on the type of science that's really, um, uniquely aligned with what we can do, the long life on the surface of Venus. So, so that's never been done before, taking time-based measurements, mm -hmm. things like weather, for example. <laughs> right. Try to imagine, you know, right, you, you put a lander that lasts for a few minutes on the surface and then trying to predict what the, what the, what the weather, the climate is like on Venus. It's going to be really tough to do, right? So, so we're trying to do, focus on science that you can do uniquely well or uniquely with the fact that you're there for long periods of time. So we've taken time-based uh, temperature measurements, pressure measurements, wind measurements, um, energy deposition. So how much energy from the sun actually gets down to the surface. Those are the types of things we do. So so what we do is um, the way we operate this is that those types of measurements 
don't require very high frequency measurements. So we don't have to take 10 samples of temperature a second where we know that over a whole Venus day, it's only going to vary two or three degrees Celsius, right? So we're going to we, we, we um, uh, basically keep track of time, most of our mission, and then periodically, let's say maybe every eight hours, we'll take, a, we'll take readings. We'll take readings of all our sensors and transmit them, and then we'll go to sleep so that we can extend the time that we're avail we can stay alive on the surface. So by doing that, by doing that process, um, we, should, we, we expect and we're designing for being able to operate for 60 days on the surface of Venus with larger batteries, we can we can double or triple. That depends on how much you know battery mass we want to take. That's where most of our mass goes to, in fact, is the battery. And so you could provide, I guess, intermittent weather measurements over the course of sixty days from from this, which is long enough to get a sense of what the weather is like on Venus. Because right now, the assumption is that it's always hot, but you know. Who knows if it's that's, that's slight correct. variations in hot. Um, <laughs> slight variations in hot, but there's also, so there's also um, the, the, the timing of this, the 60 days was really targeted from a science perspective. So the Venus solar day is, um, you know, it's, it's so Venus rotates two, every 243 days. It's solar day because it's spinning backwards is twice that, right? So if we have a mission for 60 days, what that does is it guarantees us we go from a, a day to a night or a night to a day transition somewhere in there. And that's never been measured. Mm -hmm. So we don't, uh, you know, so I don't know if you're familiar with the super rotation, the, 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 of the winds, velocity winds yeah. up in the upper clouds. And so, so we don't really still understand what drives that. We have some theories and ideas, but we don't really know the key. Some of the key is, is what's happening at the surface. Right. And so our ability to take measurements across that transition may really help inform you know, the global weather, the global climate, the global atmospheric dynamics of the system. And so we've targeted our 60 days to make sure no matter when we land, we're going to capture one of those events. And what about being able to analyze the chemistry of the atmosphere as well? I mean, I know that, you know, we don't really understand if there's volcanism on Venus, active volcanism. Would you be able to analyze the chemistry of the atmosphere and be able to give a sense of what's going on there? Yes, in fact, that that is one of the um, we. So we have a, a chemical sensor suite, um, and what it does, it, it uses MEMS devices, and for certain species. So it's not like a mass spectrometer where we um, ingest and then look at the look at what's there. What we do is we have tuned um, MEMS sensors that look at abundances of certain species, things that we expect to have on the Venus near the Venus surface. And we use those. These are very small, low power devices. And we do just like with our weather measurements, we take those. And so we're measuring chemical abundance variance over time for those selected species. So we are doing that. And that's another measurement we can take with very low power, low data volume uh, types of measurements, what we can do over time. And like you say, if there's some outgassing, if we're by a volcano, is it spewing out SO2? Is what's happening? Some, you know, those things we would be able to detect. What about moving? I mean, you know, when you look at Mars, exploration of Mars, I mean, the rovers have revolutionized what we're able to find traveling from, from place to place. But I'm sure with that, you need better communication to and from the spacecraft, some kind of camera system. Like, it starts to get mm -hmm. complicated fast. Have you thought it, about it what it might take to build a rover? We have. We have. Actually, um, we've pulled together a team um, of, of experts from around the, the country um, uh, not that long ago, and we looked at 
basically surface platforms. What, what sort of science could you achieve with different capabilities? Mobility is one of those. If you had mobility, you can do certain things. If you had uh, a lot more intelligence, processing power, higher fidelity electronics, you can do other things. And so we've looked at, and if you had more time, you can do more things, right? So, so we have looked at rovers. The, 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 I think, and personally, the hardest challenge with rovers on the surface of Venus is a power system. If you had power, if you had enough power, you can control your thermal environment. Some of those things are really difficult to do in those conditions. Those are the things you'd really focus on and to use some of the terrestrial capabilities and and and, and invest in the cooling. So so power is a key for mm-hmm. some of these. And, and mobility, of course, needs higher power than you typically have with a battery. Right, at least not for a long mission. So you would need something different, and that's where that's a, that's a, that, yeah, that, that's the key there—a a high temperature power system that has long life, and that would give you the ability to do mobility. And the assumption that I guess we're making in the beginning is that this this battery is being sent to Venus fully charged, and then it's going to discharge over the course of its mission. Correct. Is there any way to get energy into it from the surface of, of Venus? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've been looking at that too. So there are there are two candidates for that at the moment that we've noted, noted. And one of them, there is solar energy that does get to the surface. It's it's much lower than here on Earth, even though it's closer to the sun. But because of those thick cloud layers and a very dense atmosphere, not much of it actually gets to the surface. So so and then the temperatures also will make a system that captures solar energy, converts it to electrical, very inefficient. So you need large areas for layer, very little power. So, but that could be enough to trickle charge, for example, a battery, recharge a battery. So that's one. Another one is winds. So we, we the, the, the missions that have gone to the surface of Venus have detected surface wind speeds um, somewhere, uh, they all read somewhere between a quarter to about a meter and a half uh, meters per second um, as, as the velocities of those. So one can imagine maybe harnessing some of that with some sort of windmill. Hmm. Um, so, so we have designs uh, and, and, and thought and, and some concepts of how to do that. Again, you know, unless you're taking a very large system, it's going to be small amounts of power. So the velocities are low, even though it's very dense. So you, that's a good thing, but the velocities are very low. So you get minimal energy that you can take out of that. The, the thing with the wind one is that we don't have enough measurements to be real confident as to if we're going to have wind at the spot we land and how how persistent and consistent is it and so so i think we're going to have to take some of these early measurements like with what we're doing now measure the winds and then in the future we can design some systems that mm. can maybe take advantage of some of that so 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 right now the battery is seems like the best thing to do initially I know there's some research by NASA a few years ago into looking into non-electronic forms of rovers, clockwork rovers that could mm-hmm. explore the surface of Mars. Have, has any of those ideas sort of continued on into the work that you're doing? Well, I'm not the one to comment on, on you know, how those have progressed. I do know some of the people that have developed those and we've interacted with them. So, um, they're, they're, they have done some work. I don't know mm. how, how this is progressing today, so I can't really answer that question. What I can say, though, is that I think in the long term, we probably um, want to be working together with some of those capabilities and those ideas, along with some of the uh, very focused ones that maybe we have. So you, if you have those types of rovers, that's really wonderful. You're still going to want to get the data off and somehow transmit it to, to an orbiter or, or back to Earth. And so, so some of those techniques are, are hard to... Uh, see how that that's viable right now. So there's still maybe some elements of those types of rovers, even though 
Um, you know, you can find mechanical ways to, to keep track of time or move and mobility and all kinds of things. There might be some combination that might be the best if we work together on that. So that, that's my personal view on that, but um, I, I don't know where they're at. Yeah, the, the, actually, the, the methods of communication mechanically were actually my favorites of the whole system. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Because they would do things like have like retro reflectors that are spinning around mm -hmm. and they can mechanically change. And so you could view from orbit a configuration of retro reflectors on the top of the rover and you would use that to transmit information as an orbiter is flying past. And so you wouldn't necessarily need to have a so like a radar, a radar reflector. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you would have a radar reflector right, on the yeah. top of it, and you would be able to kind of open and close some kind of dot matrix yeah. uh, on yeah, top yeah. of the spacecraft, and then One as and your zeros, as your yeah. orbiter flew over to, overhead, it would measure that and go, okay, that's the weather, that's the temperature, whatever, and keep moving and save yeah, yourself all yeah. of the power of the transmitter. So actually, you know, when I was keeping track of those science papers. Cool. I mean, yeah. the, the strand beasts concept was great, but I, I really, yeah, because like, I really suspect that it's going to be that communication is going to be power hungry. How do you get that information from the surface of Venus through that horrible atmosphere? You're, and back you're home absolutely to right. That, that, that is the, the big energy draw. Yeah. So, so let me, let me ask you a question then. Uh, so I haven't followed this. Um, so in terms of the measurements themselves, so they have a tech. So the, the mechanical approaches, they have a, a way to mechanically capture temperature or, or some data and then and then transfer that mechanically to right. this indicator. Yeah, yes. that you would have some kind of mechanical version of a thermometer that would yeah. that would based on the temperature sort of that it was reading, it would change a different yeah. it would open up a different configuration of radio. Yeah reflectors radar reflectors on the top of the rover that yeah. would then be read by something from space like braille almost and yeah but cool. i think that in in your situation obviously you can skip all that and just go straight to configuring the yes. reflectors electronically so i so i suspect that there's a lot of really great ideas to solve some of those problems so there's there was another i think it was a NIAC grant a couple of years ago about a like a like a wind sail like yes. something that would yeah. just yeah. like a, I'm familiar with that like one, a yeah. land sail that would just slowly yeah. drift yeah, across sail. yeah yeah they had, had solar panels for the for the sail itself right or on the sail itself yeah yeah i see i've seen, seen that one yeah yeah and i and like i wonder like you, know, you talk about that idea of solar panels but i think you're you're probably back to that same issue right that you have to like a solar panel is a computer chip and so you would need mm -hmm. to re-engineer and so so do you feel Correct. pretty confident that you can make solar panels out of these silicon carbide chips? So that's not work that we're doing here, but I've, yes. Uh, so there, um, there are people, uh, boy, I'm trying to, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Jonathan is his first name. Uh, Grandidier, I mm. think is, is who, who the, uh, the principal investigator was for some NASA awarded activity to develop a high temperature solar cell. So yes, there's been some work. Uh, there's been some promising work on that. We don't, we don't, we're not working on that right now here, um, but we have talked to them because, as I mentioned to you, the trickle charging. So, uh, so one of our one of our um, life limiting things is the, the most of the power goes into the communication system, as you mentioned. That's where the energy goes. But the second thing that actually takes the uh, energy um, is the keeping of time, keeping track of time, because we're using an ele electronic system for that. So. Um, so even though it's very low, but it's always on. And so if we can come up with a recharging system, if you will, maybe with solar cells 
that makes up that difference, then then our life can really grow quite quite significantly, right? So then it's really we still have to, uh, especially if we have something above that, right? We can slowly recharge, and and if we um, set our um, frequency of communications equal to the, you know, the energy that it takes that to the energy recharge with, we can potentially go indefinitely. Right. So, so those are things that we're, we're looking at. Right. So in the beginning, you're, you're checking every couple of hours and then you start checking every couple of days and then every couple of months. And you're looking for those much longer seasonal patterns. As long as you can stay ahead of the power drain, you could last until I guess the correct the corrosive atmosphere kind of dismantles correct. it at an atomic level. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well. That's right. We'll, we'll, we'll. Uh, you know, we we'll have to build a thing so that the corrosion uh, doesn't happen either. We'll select our materials that, it's, that, that it doesn't happen. But, but that's where uh, something like a solar cell high temperature could really play into the system and and how we why we've been talking to them about those kinds of things. You know, what are the areas that are necessary? How big are we? If we make it too big, then of course, then it's difficult to to land and, and integrate into other vehicles. And if it's too small, then we won't get enough power. So those are all the kinds of trades that we we continue to do. So this is going to sound really weird, but are there any advantages to Venus? Like, like, you know, NASA is planning on sending this helicopter to Titan. Titan's an, another very inhospitable yes. environment, and yet it has a thick, it has a low gravity and a thick atmosphere that allows a helicopter to function actually quite nicely. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that, that Venus has going for it with all of this sort of horrible environment? Oh, well, so yeah. So what's the motivation for going to Venus? And there, and there's a whole bunch of them, right? Um, you know, beyond the obvious, it's a mysterious place and we want to explore and want to, to find out. But, but um, you know, a little bit more deliberate, more deeper than that. So Venus is, you know, our closest neighbor, right? It's the, the planet that's closest to us. It's very similar in size. The mass is very similar, probably made of the same materials and, and so forth. The composition is similar. So, so why are, are they so, so different, right? Um, and so the thinking is that, uh, Venus is, there's probably more Venuses out there than there are Earths. And so when we look at star or planets around other stars, when we look at our planet, what, what can we learn? And so Venus could tell us a lot, right? Um, trying to solve these, solve these mysteries will tell us a lot about our solar system, about Earth and about other planets around stars. So all these mysteries, like, you know, why do you have the super, super rotation? Why is Venus spinning so doggone slow? And backwards, you know what what's going on with the the magnetic field that we can't find, <laughs> you know you know what does that tell us about the interior, um, you know so so there's the other other simple kind of fun things to think about you know Venus's day is longer than its year and and, and you know no seasons all these things so and the super rotation so there's a whole boatload let not even getting into some of the atmospheric in, uh, things that are quite unique the UV absorber which you probably heard about. Um, detection of phosphine and something. So, so all kinds of th things about Venus that it's a laboratory for us to learn about ourselves and about other other bodies. So, so there's a lot of compelling reasons to go to Venus. Yeah, and I love that idea that Venus, I mean, is another planet in is an Earth-sized world with an Earth-sized mass, Earth amount of mass with Earth gravity in the habitable zone of the Sun, and yet we can tell it is not habitable to Earth life. <laughs> And, and so it, it, how fortunate we are that we have an Earth analog right here with us in the solar system. But, but, yep, but then you think about how difficult it is for, for us to even analyze Venus, and it's right over there. And then we think about the search that we're trying to conduct for 
extrasolar planets, which are tens of light years away, it shows us the scale of the challenge that we face. Mm -hmm. But but I guess what and I- And it shows us the potential of, of ex what we can learn by exploring Venus too. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, I guess what I was getting at, not necessarily from a like, why go to Venus, but more of a, of the engineering challenges, are there any advantages okay. to Venus itself? Does it, does it, for despite oh. all of its sort of horrible conditions, is is actually giving us any benefits in terms of making some aspect of the engineering a little easier? Um, I don't think it makes the engineering easier, but I think there are benefits. So whenever we tackle these difficult challenges, there there are benefits to our understanding of, of physics. And the things that we're developing for Venus will help us here. So there are Venus-like applications here on Earth. Um, mining, deep mining, for example. So the the temperatures and conditions are not hmm. all that dissimilar in some situations on Earth. And so the advancements we're making in terms of the sensors, the ability to process, to understand what's going on, will allow us to be more efficient, smarter at the things that we're doing here. So So there are terrestrial reasons to do and benefits that we get by tackling these engineering challenges, making combustion engines more efficient, being smarter about those, taking measurements in places closer to where the action is, allows us to do those things better. So all, there's, there's all kinds of things, some of which I don't even think we have an idea of how much it can impact in a good way, our, our life here. So so I think, I think when we tackle and we overcome some of these challenges, sometimes we don't know yet even all the benefits that that's going to have later, because we just never thought about it. So yeah, and it, you know, I think about like deep rock geothermal power, where you're mm -hmm. going down to the point where your traditional electronics can start melting. If you want to analyze the state of the borehole, having a computer that can handle that kind of high temperature sounds like like an advantage. Um, but like, you know, being down on the surface of Venus has been described as being under the ocean, like under, under mm -hmm. a kilometer of water and that pressure. And yet, if you're at the bottom of the ocean, things would float. So are there, I guess, like, do balloons work, dirigibles, zeppelins, inflatable bouncy castles? Is there some, is there some <laughs> strategy that, that would actually work quite well down near the surface of Venus in terms of mobility and getting around? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So that is actually one of the things that, again, we looked at when we we're talking about exploring the surface um, are, are using, so instead of driving around, because, you know, um, when you think about it uh, and you get closer into the details of the Venus surface, very, a, a large chunk of it is very similar, you know, kind of flat. So, so what we like to explore are, are transitions where change is happening, or go from one, one type of surface to another type of surface. And that tells us more than a big area of the same, right? So on Venus, we'd have to go a very long way. Our mobility, mobility on Mars, that's not probably good enough for the type of mobility we would need on Venus. So you just, you just pointed out one of the areas that one of the ways that you'd get around that is by using the, the atmosphere that's moving above you and then using some sort of floating platform, right? And some sort of balloon-based system to move around. And there've been studies about that. Um, so as you get higher in altitude, the temperature becomes more Earth-like, right? So there are conditions where you're in the clouds, so you've got your sulfuric acid problem, but your temperature and your pressure conditions are what you're used to dealing with. So, so there are balloon concepts. The, the, of course, the Soviets have flown balloons in the past as well. Um, there are NASA concepts for balloons, both ones that just float, ones that can control their altitude 
different techniques for doing that and even some concepts where they go down and, and can touch the surface somewhere go back up and then come back down that could um reduce some of the technical challenges if you're if you're only down at the surface for short periods of time um and 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 you know you use the atmosphere to your advantage to move somewhere else so there are those kinds of ideas to to really understand a system a complex system like venus we probably need elements of all of these we we'll probably need we need time on the surface at those temperatures to probe the interior, to probe deeper into the chemistry, get below the weathering layer that's on the chemically weathered layer that's on the surface, and maybe alien weather too. Um, but but then again, spend time in situ in the clouds and all these things to get a whole, better picture of the whole systems. So I think all of those are factors, and all of those are, are techniques and tactics we can use to get a big better picture. Yeah, it, it is interesting, like philosophically for the longest time we've been quite fixated on mars on the habitability of mars is there was there water on mars is there life on mars but now with the rise and discovery of all of these exoplanets the questions about these exoplanets are coming faster than the answers are coming and now we know of over 5300 confirmed exoplanets probably tens of thousands of of candidate worlds suddenly trying to understand another planet has become a high priority and suddenly we realize the gap in our knowledge about venus like like the resolution <laughs> yeah. of magellan of, of the, right the, <laughs> it's right there yeah the resolution of magellan is terrible right like i think it's like 100 meters a pixel or something or 30 meters a pixel like like and yet with mars we can see things that are a few centimeters across from space like suddenly it's this, yeah, this wonderful planet is right there. We know almost nothing about it. It's time to learn. It's time to learn. And and so yeah, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the missions that NASA <laughs> selected and also contributing with Envision. So we're hoping to, uh, you know, improve on that, of the insight that we have from Magellan, really do that at much higher resolution, understand the surface a lot better and probe through with some of the, in those narrow bands that we can actually look at and look at bulk mineralogy and so forth. So these missions are going to be really exciting. I mean, I think I think what we're doing here is kind of a, a, a step that's going to be critical to understanding Venus that, that goes beyond what an orbiter can do. And that's, again, the, the beauty of having multiple, and I, I think the need for having multiple assets tackle different parts of the problem because it is a system. So we'll learn about this. It's going to give us great data. That's going to inform something else. And, and so on, and it just builds. Yeah. And the more we have there, like with Mars, the quicker we can get a picture of the, the total system. Well, uh, Tibor, it's been great to talk to you. If people want to follow your work or follow the research that, that your group is doing, what's the best place to do that? Uh, that's a wonderful question. So um, nobody ever knows the, the answer to this. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody asked me that one. Google Scholar, so, yeah. So different the... parts. <laughs> different parts of that um, we have websites for. So we have we have a Venus simulation capability where we can um, simulate the Venus pressure, temperature, and the complex chemistry extended periods of time. So that's what we'll be doing a lot of our testing for our system. So we have a website on that, that that's active that'll show some of the tests that we've done, some of the results where we've looked at chemical weathering. So there's some of that. Um, I do 
uh, present at a number of different places. So anybody that looks at Venus science, a um, number of papers. So that's probably the, the mechanisms that are most common or they just reach out to me directly. Right. I don't have like a blog no. or anything like that. And that's best, I yes, think, sir. you know, stay off of social media, just focus on <laughs> on exploring Venus. I think that'll work out for all of us. Well, if if and when you do send your spacecraft to for months on Venus, would you would you let us know? Oh, you bet. Yeah, I'm going to let everybody know about that one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you will. Well, thank you so much for your time and good luck. It sounds exciting. Well, thank you. I appreciate the interest and great talking to you. Take care. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to David Giltonen, Maud Sue, George, Jeremy Matter, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verabayoff, Josh Schultz, and M. Drew Gross, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us. <laughs>